This morning we are in 1 Kings chapter 21. I'll invite you to turn with me if you have your Bible to, uh, to join us in reading this. Uh, it will also be on the screen. I invite you to stand with me as we prepare to receive this word together. Would you pray this prayer with me? Lord, this is your word to me today. May it be a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. Help me to hide this word in my heart that I might not sin against you. May I pray it in, read it through, live it out, and pass it on. Amen. Amen. Beginning here with verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's so close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard. If you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth, the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard. If you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and king. So they took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up, went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, This is what the Lord says, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says, In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, even yours." And Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
May God add his blessing to his word this morning. You can be seated. Interesting story. I'm sure many of you have heard this before. In March earlier this year, the U.S. Justice Department announced indictments of 50 people in a rather bizarre college admission scandal involving the super-rich in our society. Some of you have probably followed that. People who were worth tens, even hundreds of millions of dollars were found making huge bribes to ensure that their child would be accepted into a prestigious school of their own choosing. Actresses Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin, along with their husbands, were some of the more noteworthy accused. Answers were provided for standard, uh, standardized tests, or they just had students take the uh, tests altogether. Other students take the test altogether. What was even more bizarre was to me was how they often would take Photoshop, and it was used to uh, superimpose students like rowing so that they could get on a rowing team at the school. It was just ludicrous. And what was most maddening, of course, was the degree to which these already privileged families went to beat the system. They have so much, but they thought that it entitled them to much more. And so now, Lori Laughlin of Full House fame appears to be headed to the big house. And I'm not talking about the one in Ann Arbor either. <laughs> Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. In 1 Kings 21, Elijah is given the task of confronting the rich and the powerful and allowing them to hear from God as he challenges King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Now, I want you to think about the setting of this moment. Ahab is the king of Israel. He is without a doubt the richest and most powerful man in his country. He lives in a palace in Samaria, and his residence is overlooking the, the, the most picturesque grounds in all of his kingdom. You can imagine, along with his great view, you know he has the best amenities, all the latest gizmos and gadgets. He has horses and chariots, servants at his beck and call. He wears the finest clothes. He eats the finest food. He has so much that many people don't have at all. But somebody once asked the richest man uh, in America at the time, in the world at the time, John Rockefeller, how much money would it take to satisfy him? And some of you know what he said. Rockefeller replied, just a little bit more. Now, it's interesting to me, no matter how much you have, if not checked by something else, that will always be the answer. Just a little bit more. Now, Ahab had so much, but he wasn't satisfied. Because here's the thing. Next to his property is this gorgeous vineyard. It was beautifully designed, I think, in my mind's eye. I see gentle curving paths, a pond or two, birds singing. The problem was it didn't belong to him. It was owned by a man named Naboth. To Ahab's embarrassment, when he would have guests to the palace, they would often remark about the beauty of the vineyard next to his property, and they'd say, hey, can I go to a, for a stroll? But Ahab would have to tell them sheepishly, well, I'm sorry, but, but that doesn't belong to me. And that, that aggravated Ahab, and he was convinced that he needed to have that piece of property. In Deuteronomy 17, we read that God limits the power of the king of Israel. 
God had made it clear that, that kings were not to, uh, permitted to confiscate land to benefit themselves. The, the kings of pagan countries, well, they could do that, of course. They were absolute dictators. But in the scripture, God had limited the power of the king of Israel. So Ahab coveted the vineyard in the worst way, but he could not possess it. Now, in verse 2, we read that Ahab attempted to buy Naboth's vineyard. It appears that he made a fair offer, maybe even a generous one. But, of course, Naboth refuses. It was his inheritance, and he could not sell. Now, some of us might read that, and we think, well, maybe Naboth was just being stubborn, or he was being nostalgic. The truth is, is he was being obedient to God's command. In Leviticus 25, God had forbade the people of Israel from selling their land to anyone except their own relatives. And so every, that was so that every generation would have a place to live. Ahab came away crushed by this denial. He went to his palace miserable, sullen, angry, and in verse 4, we have this pathetic description of the king of Israel sulking in his bed, refusing to eat. Can't you just see him there, pouting, almost ready to suck his thumb? He, he's like a Michigan fan after they played Ohio State. He, he, he was a man who had nearly everything, but he focused on what he didn't have. And he was miserable. Now, I've got to tell you, that's nothing new. Greed has been a stealer of joy since the beginning of time. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve could eat from every tree in the garden except one. And you remember what happened there. The tenth and final commandment that God gives us in the Scripture in Exodus 20 reads, You shall not covet. Exodus 20, 17. To covet is to, to be so jealous of somebody else, of what they have, that you're miserable. Now, it's not wrong to be ambitious. It's not wrong to enjoy things and want things and even have things. Jesus was poor, as most of us recognize, but, but Jesus did own a seamless garment that was considered so valuable that when he was crucified, you remember that the soldiers didn't want to divide it, and so they cast garments so that they could have it. What is wrong is, so, is to be so materialistic that if you don't have something that someone else has, it, it disrupts your life. It takes over. Maybe you've experienced this. Let's, let's say you have a ticket to an Ohio State football game. You go into the stadium and, and you realize that you're in the upper deck, up there in the nosebleeds where the clouds are. But you're just privileged to, to be there and to be a part of all that's going on in the stadium. And you're cheering and you're enjoying yourself until you check your Facebook feed. And, and when you look on your phone and you realize you have a friend who's also in the stadium. And he's checked in and you realize he took a picture and he's on the second row on the 50-yard line. Now, how do you feel about your seat? If you're like me, suddenly those no that nosebleed doesn't feel so good. And you're like, why am I up here when he gets to be down there? Or worse yet, if they're in one of those loges and they're eating, you know, shrimp and, and stuff. That's that's changes everything. That's covetousness. 
Have you ever gone to somebody's house? You know, you and your spouse go in and they're about the same age as you and you find, man, their home is so much larger and nicer and they got acreage and it, it's more than you could ever dream about. And so on the way home, you're starting to feel rather, rather down and miserable and say, well, why don't we have that? We're the same age. Why can't we have what they have? They, they have furniture that goes back to Louis XIV. We have furniture that goes back to Value City on the 15th if we don't make our payment. That's covetousness. It's very difficult as Christians not to get caught up in that kind of thinking. Jesus said in Luke 12, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Think about what that means. We have to be on our guard. We have to think about this in a way that, that goes against the way the world values stuff. We have to remind ourselves constantly that possessions are temporary. They don't determine a person's worth. And while it's okay to be ambitious and to have things and those things are never to have us. See, when we imagine that having a more will make us happy, we are buying into a lie. But our ultimate goal as a Christian is to make Jesus happy. We are to, to, our ultimate goal is to receive eternal life and the gift that he offers. Jesus said in Matthew 16, What will it profit a man for him to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? So when Queen Jezebel sees her husband so distraught, she decides to take things into her own hands. Now, we already know her to be wicked and vindictive. If you've been following the last few weeks, you've seen that. In verse 7, she chastises her weak, weak husband. She tells him to act like the king of Israel. Implied there, of course, is that he should act like the kings of Canaan. In, in the, the country where she was from, the king would just take the land. There would be no question to satisfy his desire. Of course, that reminds me, and this is so important. Listen, you marry outside of the Lord, you're going to have always that temptation to accept their values contrary to God's. And Jezebel comes up with a plan that is certainly contrary to God's directives. So what we see here is she writes letters under the king's signature to, to the leaders of Israel proclaiming a day of fasting. Now when I read that, it occurred to me how absolutely sinister her plan really was. Think about it. Here Jezebel is proclaiming a day of fasting. What's that all about? Not a day of feasting even, a day of fasting. Why would you call for a fast? A fast implies a serious concern before God. She intended to create the impression of repentance and seeking after the Lord. You call a fast when you believe the nation is under judgment. You call a fast when, when you believe as a culture you have committed a grave sin. 
So she calls a fast to give the impression that the king and she were seeking God and humbling themselves before him. Isn't that interesting? She was calling a fast even though she was anything but a true believer in the God of Israel. And that made me think of something. Listen, she was all about using the Jewish belief system to get her way. She was not afraid to use the religion as a way of increasing her power and doing her bidding. And I took that as a warning. Listen to me. Jezebel was not the first politician, nor is she the last to use religion for her own corrupt purposes. Political rulers are often very happy to act the part, to say the right words, to give a few concessions, to act like they care about your values and beliefs. And so Christians, I tell you and listen to me, we need to be very careful in our day we have to be wise as serpents, as serpents and innocent as doves. She was using the Jewish belief system to get her way. She was using religion to accomplish her purposes, but not God's. Jezebel arranges for two scoundrels to be near Naboth on the day of fasting and of course, we see them concoct a story. They falsely testify that Naboth cursed both God and king. The Old Testament had said that anyone guilty of blasphemy should be stoned, but it had to be verified by two witnesses. So again, Jezebel knew enough about the law of God to use it for her own advantage. And the devious plot worked perfectly. Naboth is falsely accused, cases closed, he's stoned to death. And in fact, 2 Kings 9 verse 26 says that Naboth's sons were stoned with him, thus eliminating any heirs to the property. At that, it reverts to the state and could easily be annexed to the palace. And so in verse 15, Ahab is told the news and voila, he has a vineyard. I can just imagine what it must have felt like for Jezebel and Ahab as they strolled into this vineyard. They smiled with a smirk. Jeremiah 19 or 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God is not naive about what we can do in our hearts. He's not naive about how wicked things can be. The desire here for possessions, however, drives them to murder and thievery and disregard for decency. Greed has always motivated people to all kinds of wickedness. 1 Timothy 6, 8 and 10 says this, If we have food and clothing, with all these we should be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. There is always a temptation, a, a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with griefs. 
I find it interesting, that last phrase, they pierce themselves with griefs. Notice here that Jezebel and Ahab, they were, Ahab was surely not ignorant of what had gone on. They thought this plan had worked perfectly, without a flaw. But the Bible says, when we are greedy, we pierce ourselves with many griefs. Galatians 6 reminds us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that is what he will reap. And so in verse 19, God sends Elijah a personal, uh, to give a personal message to King Ahab. Elijah responds, this is what the Lord says, Ahab. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood? Dogs will lick up your blood, yes, even yours. And so Elijah confronts yet again the king and proclaims a word of judgment. The Bible says, your sin will find you out. Be sure, if you will sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. And then notice Ahab's response in verse 20. He looks at Elijah and he says, you have found me, my enemy. It's interesting to me, remember the last time Elijah confronted uh, Ahab, Elijah was labeled a troublemaker. Now he is called an enemy. We don't like people who point out our sin. And so Ahab has disobeyed God. He feels guilty. Elijah, however, was not Ahab's enemy. Elijah was being truthful. In Job 24, it talks about the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless is momentary. Though his pride reaches the heavens and his head touches the cloud, he perishes forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? In other words, the scripture is telling us there's pleasure in sin, but it's brief. But then comes the disaster. Now, what's interesting to me and what surprises any of us as we read this story is that Ahab actually responds. And it becomes this amazing demonstration of God's grace. As wicked as Ahab was, God was still willing to forgive him. 1 Kings 21, 27 says that when Ahab heard these words, he believed Elijah and temporarily... He repented. God even says to Elijah, have you noticed how humble Ahab has become? I'm not going to bring disaster this day. That's amazing to me. If you think about it, if anyone ever deserved punishment and destruction, it was Ahab. We've seen some of that. He had married a, a pagan woman, disobeying God. He had helped Israel establish idol worship. He had tried to kill Elijah and the prophets, and now we've just seen him steal property and murder an innocent, loyal citizen. There has never been a king so wicked as King Ahab, the scripture says. 
Yet as far and as wicked as he had become, the moment that he turns around, the moment he gives any indication of willingness to repent of his sin, God responds and is willing to forgive him. Isn't that wonderful? A few weeks ago, if you had told me the name Kanye West, I would not have been able to tell you a thing about him. I just just got in that kind of a circle. I might have recollected that he was some kind of musician, but that's pretty much it. But it turns out that he's a, a pretty big deal. And if you've been following his story recently, Kanye recently has begun to profess faith in Christ. He came out with an album, I think this past week, called Jesus is King, and is unashamedly declaring his faith and trust in Jesus. And of course, however, there are some who are skeptical, to say the least. But I've got to tell you, everything that I've seen, I, I listened to an interview the other day, I have read reviews on, on the album and, and, and various things, and, and it's been pretty convincing. Some have said, do you know what he's done? How arrogant he has been. How messed up he's been for years and years. But this is what I come to believe. Listen, if Kanye West isn't redeemable by the blood of Christ, then neither am I. That's the gospel. The gospel takes the worst. The gospel takes rich and poor, black and white, absolutely sinful, and those who think they are sort of good, and grace covers it all. And, and I want you to know that regardless of what you have done, no matter how dark your life, no matter how evil it may have looked, that if you are willing to humble yourself and repent and surrender to Jesus Christ, God is willing to forgive you and invite you to begin a new life in him. That's the gospel. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, in his ministry, we see him forgive the woman at the well. She was married five times. At that point, she was living with a man who was not her husband. And Jesus forgave her and called her into his service. Jesus welcomed Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who, who had, had, had become a traitor to his own people, a thief to many, and Jesus came into his home and forgave him and gave him a real new life. That's what the gospel does. Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. His grace is greater than all our sins. I want to quickly show you a, a video of a young man who went trick-or-treating earlier this week who happened to find an empty bowl on the porch where he was treating or tricking or whatever you call it. So let's take a moment here and, and take a look at that. Oh, 
How many of you have seen that already? Some of you, a few of you, good. Uh, it just warmed my heart. Here he is. He goes up to the porch, looking for trick or a treat, you know, looking for some candy. The bowl is empty, and you begin to see him thinking, "What do I do right here? What, what, something's not right." And and instead of pouting, instead of saying, "I want more. I want what's coming to me," he reaches into his bag and he puts some into the bowl so that the kids behind him can have something. Man, man, isn't that wonderful? I, I can't help but think that's such a demonstration of what Jesus does for us. Jesus comes to our world and he finds that we have nothing. And yet he takes his goodness and his righteousness and he gives it to us. And there's plenty for everyone. For Kanye West. And for Jeff Schultz. And for Ahab. But before we close, I must warn you that God's grace has limitations too. If you keep reading, Ahab's repentance was short-lived. Truth is, he never really did deal with the idol worship that was going on in Israel. There came a point when he so became hard-hearted to the point where Elijah says, Don't go into the battle, thus saith the Lord. And, and Elijah or Ahab goes into the battle anyway. And in the battle, he is hit by a stray arrow. And he began to bleed profusely. The blood ran from the floor of his chariot, and that night King Ahab died. And of course, then the Bible tells us that night they washed the chariot, and the dogs came, and they licked his blood up, just as the word of the Lord had declared. Now, what is interesting to me is I was reflecting on this passage suddenly occurred to me, and I saw this, that the disciple who betrayed Jesus, you remember his name, Judas, is really portrayed as an Ahab in the New Testament. Judas's greed consumes him. And in Acts 1, if you read that story, he takes the money given to him when he betrays Jesus Christ, when he murders Jesus Christ, he gains a field. You remember, he goes out and he buys a field. He hangs himself to the point where somehow his innards and blood all ooze out of his body to the ground, just like Ahab. The story then, the story I'm telling you today, isn't so much about coming to God. It is about staying with God. Choosing today to keep your eyes fixed on him, despite the fact that we have a world of shiny things around us. In our day, that is so hard. So remember this, greed can consume you. Be on your guard. Second, remember God's grace through Jesus Christ. You can repent and be forgiven. Right now, today, Jesus had so much. Instead of taking, Jesus gives. And he wants to spend eternity with you. 
But thirdly, I would remind you that you need to choose wisely. When you stand before God, you will either be under his grace or under his wrath. This morning we have the opportunity to choose. Let's choose him. Will you pray with me? Father, I, I'm struck by the fact how easily it is that those who can become very close to you, who have, and I think about Ahab, I think about the demonstration of your love for him, the miracle on Mount Carmel, the fact that you sent Elijah to speak to him directly, how often, Lord, you were found pursuing him. And then, Lord, I think about how you are so gracious in pursuing us. But, Lord, this morning, some of us have been captured by something else. We've been consumed by greed and covetousness, or maybe it's some other sin. But, Lord, this morning, I pray that we might hear your voice and we would respond in obedience and we would choose you. Thank you, Lord, that at, our, at that very moment we make a decision to repent of our sins. You are there to wrap your arms around us and welcome us back to the fold. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work this morning and we would be yours completely. That, Lord, you would forgive us when those things of this world tempt us away from you but that we would find contentment in what we have. And even more so, Lord, we would find joy to overflowing because, Lord, you are enough. May you be more precious to us than anything. I pray, Lord, that it be just as we, we have spoken today. Father, as we open this altar, if anyone needs to come for whatever reason, I pray they would do so seeking you and you would be found here. Our hearts would be right with you when we leave this place. We know that we've been with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. For whatever reason, if you need to come this morning, this altar is open as him leads us in our worship.